0: The Biden administration has again used its veto power at the U.N. Security Council to block a call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. This is the third time the U.S. has vetoed such a resolution. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, February 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley pushes back against critics who say she has no chance of winning
1: instead of focusing on how to make America stronger tomorrow, some people want to know if I'm going to cave today.
0: Haley is vowing to stay in the race regardless of what happens in South Carolina's primary. And the former president of Honduras goes on trial in New York. He was once a key U.S. ally in the war against drugs. Now he's accused of overseeing a narco state. It's 401 news
2: headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Two men are now facing murder and other felony charges in connection with last Wednesday's shootings following Super Bowl celebrations for the Kansas City Chiefs. The Jackson County Prosecutor's Office in Missouri says each defendant faces murder in the second degree, two counts of armed criminal action, and unlawful use of a weapon. The shooting, stemming from a dispute, killed a local celebrity DJ and wounded more than 20 people. With just days to go before her home state's critical primary, Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley says she's staying in the race regardless of this weekend's results in South Carolina. Haley took on both her Republican rival, former President Donald Trump, and President Joe Biden today in what her campaign called a state of the race speech. Here's NPR Sarah McCammon.
3: Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is trailing former President Trump in her home state's primary polls and has yet to win a presidential nominating contest. But she's continued campaigning and fundraising. Speaking in Greenville, Haley argued that both Trump and President Biden are no longer fit for the presidency
1: and vowed to keep running. South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere.
3: Haley's campaign says she saw her strongest fundraising month so far in January, bringing in more than $16 million. Sarah McCammon, NPR News.
2: Former President Trump's also expected to be in Greenville tonight for a Fox News town hall. According to Fox News, it's a pre-taped event. President Biden, meanwhile, has taken his re-election campaign to California. The Biden administration is planning to announce a major new sanctions package on Russia this week. NPR's Asma Khalid reports this comes in response to the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny.
3: The White House did not say how the additional sanctions might differ from previous measures, but said it'll have more information on Friday when the sanctions are announced. White National Security spokesman John Kirby says they are intended to hold Russia accountable for what
4: happened to Navalny. And quite frankly, for all its actions over the course of this vicious and brutal war that has now raged on for two years.
3: Kirby, they're referring to Russia's war against Ukraine. The White House is also calling on Congress to quickly pass additional funding for Ukraine. A bill to do that has been held up by Republican leadership in the House. Asma
2: Khalid, NPR News. In London. Supporters of Julian Assange, outside the Royal Courts of Justice, where the WikiLeaks founder is fighting extradition to the United States to face espionage charges. Assange is accused of publicizing large amounts of sensitive information without U.S. government approval. U.S. stocks end the day lower. The Dow closed down 64 points. The S&P was down 30 points. The Nasdaq ended the day down 144 points. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren now has a Republican opponent in her bid for re-election. WBR's Anthony Brooks reports that John Deaton is a 56-year-old political newcomer. Deaton grew up working class
5: in Detroit, has lived most recently in Rhode Island and moved to Massachusetts just last month to challenge Warren. He's an attorney who represented asbestos victims and is an advocate of cryptocurrency. In a campaign video, Deaton says he's running for Senate to take on corruption in Washington and fight for working families.
6: I am running for U.S. Senate to continue my life's mission to shake things up for the people who need it most.
5: Deaton's effort to topple Warren is a long shot. After two terms in the Senate, Warren has become a fixture of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. In a statement, her office says Warren has a long record of fighting for key priorities that support Massachusetts workers and families.
0: For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. The head of the Massachusetts Gaming Commission is retiring. Kathy Judd-Stein said today she'll leave her post of chair next month when her term ends. She was appointed to the spot by former Governor Charlie Baker in 2019. Governor Moore Healey thanked Judge Stein for her leadership through the pandemic and the launch of legalized sports betting. Healey is starting the search for the next head of the Gaming Commission. Governor Healey will greet First Lady Jill Biden when Biden arrives in Boston this evening. The First Lady is giving a speech tomorrow in Cambridge that will focus on women's health research. And Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell says that the federal government needs to step up food protections. This after nearly 400 reported lead poisoning cases related to an applesauce marketed for children. Campbell joined 20 state attorneys general calling on the Food and Drug Administration to improve enforcement. The group says current policy allows baby food manufacturers to sidestep some contaminant testing. In the forecast. Pretty nice out there right now. Should be clear and calm overnight tonight. Temperature's down around 22, so cold once again. Tomorrow, sunshine's back. Highs pushing 40. Thursday, a bonus day of sunshine could make it to the low 40s. 36 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.07.
7: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kauffman Foundation. Providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Texas has now bused more
9: than 100,000 migrants to cities like Denver, New York, Chicago, at an average cost of more than $1,400 per person. In a few minutes, we will hear from a Venezuelan migrant who has benefited from that busing program, along with others who
8: question whether Texas taxpayers should continue to foot the bill. But first, the Biden administration has once again used its veto power on the U.N. Security Council to block a call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield tried to avoid this diplomatic showdown by suggesting a different
4: draft resolution. Proceeding with a vote today was wishful and irresponsible. And so while we cannot support a resolution that would put sensitive negotiations in jeopardy. We look forward to engaging on a text that we believe will address so many of the concerns we all share. Well, NPR diplomatic correspondent,
8: Michelle Kellerman, joins us now to explain more. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so this is the third time the U.S. has vetoed a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, right? Can you just explain why the U.S. keeps doing this?
10: Well, the ambassador argues that calling for a ceasefire without demanding that Hamas release hostages is not going to end this conflict. So Thomas Greenfield points out that the U.S. is working with Qatar and Egypt on a new hostage deal, one that would bring about a six-week-long pause in fighting. And she put forward a draft Security Council resolution that she says should back up this diplomacy. It actually calls for a temporary ceasefire, and that's new language for the U.S. to even be using that word, ceasefire. Mm. Um, The draft, though, says that this has to be based on a formula of getting all the hostages out. Uh, The draft also expresses grave concern for the more than a million and a half Palestinians in Rafah, that's in southern Gaza, ahead of a possible... Israeli ground operation. And, you know, Elsa, there's just a lot of concern at the U.N. right now about Rafa.
8: Yeah, a lot of concern, not only at the U.N., but all over the world. What is the U.S. doing about the situation in Rafa?
10: Well, the U.S. has been warning Israel not to go into Rafa without a clear plan on how to protect civilians. Here's Thomas Greenfield again speaking to reporters outside the U.N. Security Council chambers.
4: No attacks on Rafa should take place given current circumstances, and we will keep pressing that. We know we've heard what Israel has said. They have not gone in to attack Rafa, and we will keep engaging and urging and pushing in that direction to ensure that that does not happen.
10: So this is a case she's been making um, publicly and privately with the Israelis. Mentioning it in a draft Security Council resolution kind of ups the pressure on Israel to hold back.
8: Well, how quickly might we see a vote on the U.S. draft resolution, you think?
10: It's hard to say how long um, it'll take to negotiate this. Um, the ambassador representing the Palestinian Authority, Riyad, Ma- Riyad Mansour, said, Well, it's good that the U.S. is now willing to talk about a ceasefire, even a temporary one, he thinks it would just be better for the U.S. to press Israel to agree to one. Mansour sounded pretty frustrated with the U.S. veto today. Here's what he said in the council chambers.
11: The message given today to Israel with this veto is that it can continue to get away with murder. Israel cannot and should not and will not get away with it. We will not allow it.
10: And I should say Israel's ambassador Gilad Erdan was also at the Security Council saying diplomats keep talking about a ceasefire as if that's some magical solution to the region's problems. Take a listen.
12: A ceasefire achieves one thing and one thing only, the survival of Hamas. Exactly the opposite of how it's portrayed. A ceasefire is a death sentence for many more Israelis and Gazans.
10: So he's making clear there won't be a ceasefire as long as Hamas is controlling Gaza and holding hostages.
8: Well, speaking of hostages, I mean, what has been the latest on hostage negotiations at this point, Michelle?
10: Well, the Biden administration's envoy, Brett McGurk, is heading back to the region trying to push for a deal. But these talks are taking a long time. You know, the U.S., Qatar and Egypt came up with kind of a framework at the end of January. Hamas came back with a counterproposal a couple of weeks ago, which Israel dismissed as delusional. So these are not easy discussions. And in the meantime, fighting continues. And there's the concern about Rafah, and also the fact that not much aid is getting in.
8: That is NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thank you so much, Michelle.
10: Thank you.
9: The state of Texas has bused more than 100,000 migrants to cities like Chicago, New York, and Denver. It is part of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's border security initiative. But the transportation is costing the state millions of dollars. The Texas Newsroom's Sergio Martinez Beltran reports.
13: Hola. Hola, Sergio. ¿Cómo estás? Todo
14: bien, ¿y tú? That's Jay. The reason you hear some background noise is because he's calling in from his car as he gets ready to start his delivery job in Maryland. We're only using Jay's first initial because he worries about being targeted by immigration enforcement for speaking out. He's one of hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans who have taken a dangerous journey to cross into Mexico and later into the U.S. It all started in January
13: 2022.
14: Jay says tarde he de spent New Year's Eve with his family in Venezuela and later left for the US. He had no money with him and was only carrying a backpack with a few clothing items. The whole journey took him about two months. It included crossing the Darien Gap, the dangerous jungle between Colombia and Panama, and the Rio Grande River into the Rio, Texas. That's where Jay was processed by Border Patrol and was later offered a free bus to Washington, D.C. Jay says he was scared at the beginning because the buses were guarded by men in military gear. He wondered if they were going to take him to D.C. or to a military camp. He arrived in the nation's capital three days later. The bus Jay took was paid by the state of Texas as part of Governor Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star Border Initiative. Since the inception of the busing program in 2022, Texas has bused over 102,000 migrants. Records obtained by the Texas newsroom show that as of the end of January, Texas has spent over 148 million taxpayer dollars on this. That number is growing significantly every day. The cities that have received the highest number of migrants are New York City, Chicago, and Denver.
15: Well, it's certainly a great deal of money to to be spent. Ray
14: Perryman is the president of the Waco-based economic research company, The Perryman Group. Texas' two-year budget is $321 billion. And while bossing migrants is a small portion of that, Perryman wonders if the state should keep using taxpayer dollars to foot the bill.
15: Well, obviously, as long as as the uh, as the legislature is willing to to allow it, and the governor wants to do it, that these 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 dollar amounts as you pointed out are not a huge percentage of the overall state budget, and so it's certainly something that could be done. I think the question is, should it be done?
14: It depends who you ask. Texas State Representative David Spiller, a Republican, supports the governor's mission to bus migrants to Democratic-led cities. We knew here in Texas
16: that that was uh, a very good approach. Uh, because if nothing else, then to raise awareness to the rest of the country of
14: of what we're having to deal with here on a regular basis. And as for the cost, Spiller says the money spent is creating an impact on the nation.
16: They get a busload of folks in New York, say they get 100 people, and they think the sky is falling. We, We get 100 people every 15 minutes.
14: For the record, in December, some sectors along the Texas border saw about 2,300 daily migrant crossings, but those numbers significantly decreased in January. Meanwhile, Texas has sent over 37,000 people to New York City alone since April 2022.
17: This allowed them to get them there quickly and safely.
14: Tiffany Burrow is the operations director at Valverde Border Humanitarian Coalition, which helps recently arrived migrants in Del Rio. Initially, she coordinated with organizations in arrival cities, so migrants were received with food, clothes and respect. She says at first, the busing program wasn't all bad.
17: We strictly
14: saw this as
17: an option that, that benefited the migrants that were coming through.
14: But she says things changed last year. Texas stopped respecting certain agreements, like dropping off people before 6 a.m. or past 10 p.m., or even letting organizations know at what time buses were arriving. Burrow says these changes made it unsafe for migrants, so she stopped the partnership with the state.
17: But I think it's entirely possible that state buses have run their course. The numbers are so, they're drastically lower um, right now.
14: But Governor Abbott says he'll keep transporting migrants to other states and other governors have followed Texas lead. Florida Republican Ron DeSantis and Arizona Democrat Katie Hobbs run their own busing programs. Meanwhile, other states are feeling the burden of the influx. Last month, Illinois Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker begged Abbott not to send buses during a winter storm when the shelters were at capacity. Colorado Governor Jared Polis, also a Democrat, has asked the federal government for financial resources to states receiving migrants. But regardless of the politics of it all, the bus that Jay took definitely changed his life. He started working and saving money. He moved out of the shelter and now has an apartment. He also has a driver's license. And the bus program has also changed the lives of Jay's mother and four siblings. They all took a bus from Texas after he did and landed in New York City for free. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltrán in Austin.
8: Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in
0: about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, two of the nation's biggest credit card companies hope to join forces. Capital One is offered to buy Discover Financial in a deal valued at $35 billion. That story in about 20 minutes. Much more ahead as well.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu and H&H, the Handel & Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead H&H as Conductor Laureate this weekend at Symphony Hall. Visit handelandhaydn.org.
0: The major indices lost ground in trading on Wall Street today. The Dow gave up almost two-tenths of a percent at the closing bell. S&P gave up six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down more than nine-tenths of a percent. The median selling price for a single-family home in Massachusetts is up nearly 10% in the past year. Data out today from the Massachusetts Association of Realtors show the median sales price last month hit $570,000. The association points to a lack of homes for sale and more buyers on the hunt. The median sales price for a condo hit $520,000. That's up more than 4% from the same time last year.
18: The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now, and the Museum of Science. An immersive journey, a new exhibit transporting you to iconic spots around the globe. MOS.org.
0: A mostly clear sky tonight. Pretty cold again, down around 22 degrees. Tomorrow's sunny, breezy, dry, a bit milder. Temperatures in the upper 30s. Thursday, yet another sunny day could make it to the low to mid-40s. London's High Court began a two-day hearing to decide whether WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange can appeal his extradition to the U.S. on spying charges. Follow the case today here at 90.9 WBUR.
19: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR
8: station.
9: From NPR News, this is All
8: Things Considered.
9: I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang. Almost two years after he was extradited to the U.S., the trial of the former president of Honduras has begun in New York City. As NPR's Ada Peralta reports, Juan Orlando Hernandez faces charges that he ran Honduras as a narco state.
20: In a country used to impunity, it was a shock to see what happened in the spring of
13: 2022.
20: The former president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, came out of jail handcuffed and he was put on a plane to the United States where he was charged with drug trafficking. According to prosecutors, Hernandez took millions of dollars from some of the world's most powerful drug cartels, and in exchange, they say, the president offered them protection. The U.S. alleges Hernandez helped move tons of cocaine through Honduras on its way to the United States, Juan Orlando Hernandez has denied all of these charges. Outside the courthouse this morning, just before jury selection began, his lawyer, Raymond Colon, said they were confident in their defense.
13: Es que un va a Tell me, he
20: said, why would a president promote extradition? Why would he fight against organized crime if he was a drug trafficker? That has been central to Hernandez's defense. In an open letter, he said this trial was revenge by drug traffickers who resent his tough policies against them. How could he be a drug trafficker if as president he was such a good friend to the US? Hernandez's wife, Ana Hernandez, published a video reading his letter
21: fueron conocidos al más alto nivel del gobierno de los Estados Unidos.
20: All of his plans were known by the highest levels of the American government. The letter reads, from President Biden, who knew him as Vice President, to President Trump, the CIA, to the Justice Department, to the DEA. So how could he now be accused of being a drug trafficker? Dana Frank, whose book, The Long Honduran Night, details Honduras' recent history, says that might be one of the most interesting parts of this trial. During his two terms as president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, she says, was an unwavering American ally. Indeed, while Hernandez was president, the U.S. pumped millions into his government, including to fight drug trafficking. That's why Frank says, This is not a story about how the United States is heroically bringing a corrupt former president to justice.
21: Because the United States knew about all his crimes. Frank
20: says she hopes this trial will reveal not only how narco-corruption works in Honduras, but much more on how the United States might be complicit. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City.
9: Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine is entering its third year, and Ukraine is running out of arms. Russian troops are advancing, as here in the U.S. Congressional Republicans are holding up military aid. So Ukraine is ramping up its own production of weapons and ammunition. NPR's and Joanna Kikisis has more from Kiev.
22: We're outside a nondescript warehouse somewhere in Ukraine. A ginger-haired man named Bogdan asks us to put our phones into airplane mode okay it's on airplane mode inside the warehouse is a factory run by ukrainian armor one of the country's biggest weapons companies bogdan supervises mortar production here he declines to give his last name and the location of this factory for security reasons. Ukrainian armor has spread out its production facilities in secret locations across Ukraine to avoid being targeted by Russian missiles. The company requires all our employees to sign non-disclosure agreements, Bogdan says. And of course they can't post photos or videos from here on social media. Inside the factory, young mechanics are checking a line of newly painted mortar launchers.
23: Well, I
11: tell you, but I tell you that
22: Several hundred of these mortar launchers have been sent to the front line. But, Bogdan says, Ukraine needs many more. Russia, he says, has always had more weapons. As the war enters its third year, a cold reality is facing Ukraine its western support is flagging while Russia buys weapons from Iran and North Korea. Ukrainian armor and dozens of other homegrown arms manufacturers are turning out weapons as fast as they can.
11: We have unfair perception in the western countries, especially U.S., that the only equipment we use here in Ukraine is only what we received as a support during this war.
22: Vladislav Belbas is an arms dealer and the director of Ukrainian armor. We meet him at company headquarters in a Kiev high rise.
11: That is like fully, fully incorrect information. And we had stocks of equipment here in Ukraine from the Soviet times.
22: Ukraine reduced its anti-tank and anti-infantry weaponry to comply with a Soviet era treaty governing conventional arms in Europe. Weapons production got going again after 2014, when Russian proxies invaded and occupied part of Ukraine's east and the southern peninsula of Crimea. But since Russia's full-scale invasion two years ago...
11: Now it's rapidly increasing multiple times. And also the government went from one-time purchases to start put long-term orders to manufacturers in Ukraine.
22: Belba says Ukrainian armor started producing armored vehicles in 2015.
11: We also, starting from 2017, 2018, developed and manufacturing mortars, all kinds of calibers, 682 and 120 millimeters, and also ammunition for those mortars.
22: Ukrainian armor also makes parts for the Bohdana, a Ukrainian-designed, self-propelled howitzer mounted on a military truck. The Bogdana helped Ukrainian troops drive Russians out of Snake Island, a strategic point in the Black Sea. Across town, another company, Kvartus, makes electronic warfare and reconnaissance systems.
11: We protect the soldier at the front line our products for this needs.
22: That's Sergei Skoruk, the sales director for Kvartas. He says he visits the frontline nearly every week
11: because we are speaking with the head of electronic warfare there in brigades and they just told us what they want to see, how it will be looks like etc etc etc.
22: He says Russia uses drones to stalk Ukrainian soldiers trying to evacuate the wounded. So Kvertis developed a special backpack to block the drone's signal. A Kvertis employee named Dimitro Kavitsky zips up a black backpack with two antennae and a rechargeable battery. A button connects to a small generator inside.
12: When drone wants to kill you, you push the button. Backpack switch on, and uh, invisible defense working.
22: Kvertas has sent a 1,000 of these backpacks to the front line, and Skoruk says there are orders for many more. Ukraine eventually wants to cover all its own defense needs, but lawmaker Oleksandra Ustinova says that goal is years away. So, for example, we don't have our own gunpowder production, and so the explosives are dependent on that. Ustinova works on defense issues in Ukraine's parliament. She's been in Washington lobbying Congress to approve a $61 billion military and economic aid package to Ukraine. We understand that we cannot be guaranteed that there will be more support coming, and we have to be as independent as we can to have as much production being done in Ukraine as it is possible. So back at Ukrainian Armor's secret factory, workers keep churning out mortars and tanks. They only stop for the air raid sirens signaling another Russian missile attack. Joanna kisses NPR News, Kiev.
8: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins and Celts are both off tonight. New England Patriots' Matthew Slater is retiring after 16 seasons with the Pats. He announced his decision on social media today, thanking fans for their support. And UMass Lowell will honor a native son who was the first pro black basketball player. Harry Bucky Lou. played for the Pawtucketville Athletic Club in Lowell in 1902. He was just 18. Lou was also the first black coach of an integrated basketball team when he led the Lowell Textile School. This is WBUR.
24: WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru with a large inventory of new and pre-owned Subarus celebrating Washington's birthday all month on Route 60 in Belmont and citysidesubaru.com and the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com and Boston Lyric Opera presenting Eurydice, this March, travel to the underworld and experience love's unexpected brutality
4: and endearing beauty. You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle.
10: One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador.
4: Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at wbur.org fun.
10: Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit.
4: Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash
17: fun.
25: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On the campaign stump in Pittsburgh today, Vice President Kamala Harris announcing billions of dollars to upgrade the nation's aging water infrastructure. Funds from the trillion dollar bipartisan bill signed into law in 2021 will go toward replacing lead pipes as well as aging water mains and storm drains across the country.
10: Let's think about what has been happening in the south where even moderate flooding can overwhelm sewage systems and contaminate drinking water.
25: The infrastructure laws touted as the largest investment ever in clean water to upgrade treatment plants as well as water distribution and piping systems. Harris says more than 200 million will go to Pennsylvania one of several swing states that could determine whether Joe Biden is re-elected in November. In Greece, farmers from across the country and a caravan of tractors descended on the capital, Athens. Like their counterparts in other European countries, Greek farmers are protesting high energy costs and other issues, as Lydia Lidu reports.
26: They're protesting what they say are soaring agricultural costs, and they're demanding financial help from the Greek government, which has made some concessions. Dozens of tractors are parked in front of the Greek parliament building, decorated with signs like this one that reads, no farmers, no food, no future. Another has a coffin attached to it to mark the, quote, death of agriculture. And similar protests have been taking place across European cities in countries like Spain, France, and Poland, where farmers have also been protesting duty-free agricultural imports from Ukraine.
25: On Wall Street, stocks finished lower across the board today following losses in some big tech stocks. The Dow dropped 64 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Moore Healy wants Stewart Healthcare to leave Massachusetts. In a letter she sent today, Healy told the Texas-based company it should transfer its facilities to other operators. The financially troubled Steward runs nine hospitals in the state. Healy accuses the company of failing to submit required financial documents for years. That's a violation of state law. Healy gave Steward officials three days to produce financial records. No word yet on a response from Steward. A shelter to help newly arrived immigrants is now open in Chelsea. It will operate from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., offering refuge for people People who already have someplace to sleep at night but nowhere to go during the day. Here's WBR's Rob Lane.
27: Immigrant support nonprofit, La Collaborativa is running the shelter with money from the state. Gladys Vega is La Collaborativa's executive director. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston the facility in Chelsea will offer breakfast, lunch, and dinner for roughly 200 migrants and will support people as they start their lives in Massachusetts.
22: We will be processing documents, helping them with immigration papers, making sure that they get work authorizations that, so that we immediately can place them in jobs.
27: In the short term, La Colaborativa is also helping coordinate transportation to and from Chelsea for people who sleep at a nighttime overflow shelter in Cambridge. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. A Cambridge organization is keeping children entertained during the school
0: vacation week using arts and STEM programs. The Foundry is holding a family festival that includes science-themed cooking classes, creative movement workshops, and bookmaking classes. The Foundry's executive director, Diana Navarrete-Rakakis, says it's been gratifying to see the community coming together.
22: It's this condensed week-long time
8: for folks to come and experience a myriad of things that they might not otherwise have tried out, and at the same time both make new connections with neighbors as well as see some
0: of their old friends. The festival is mostly free and includes programming geared toward adults such as a night market on Thursday. festival runs through Saturday. The forecast is next.
28: WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum quality frames through sustainable practices.
0: Stanhopeframers.com Should be cold tonight, down around 22 degrees, then more sunny, dry, breezy days to come. Tomorrow should be mainly sunny, inching up to 39. Thursday just as bright and a little bit milder, venturing to the low 40s. This is WBUR. It is 36 degrees now at 436.
19: Support for NPR comes from the station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food from employee meal plans to on-site staffing with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person, at yptc.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
8: This is all things considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In Washington, and I'm Mary
9: Louise Kelly in Washington. Nikki Haley is not quitting. Haley spoke today in Greenville, South Carolina, a state she once led as governor. This weekend, Republican voters will cast their votes in the state's primary, and Haley is way behind former President Trump in polls. Well, let's bring in Matt Moore, former chair of South Carolina's state GOP. He worked on a super PAC for Senator Tim Scott's run for the Republican nomination. Matt Moore, welcome. Thanks for having me. What was going through your mind today as you listened to Haley swearing she is going to
29: fight on? Well, Nikki Haley struck a very, very defiant tone today. She pledged to stay in the race until some undetermined time down the road, maybe even when Donald Trump secures a majority of convention delegates. Uh, I did think the speech was very vintage. Nikki Haley, she relishes being the underdog, but it's a big but. She, she never really faced uh, a force like Donald Trump, not only in terms of his seemingly unmovable base, but let's just say the unique way in which she attacks his opponents. So uh, we'll see where it goes from here.
9: Do you see any chance that she could pull off a come, come from behind victory this weekend?
29: Well, she needs Democrats and Independents to show up in South Carolina's primary. That really has never happened in the past. There's not a good case study to point to. Hundreds of thousands of Independents sort of showing up in GOP primaries here. So uh, it's an uphill battle.
9: No, I mean, how do you explain why it's such an uphill battle? Just to point out again, she this is her state. She was a popular two-term governor not that long ago.
29: Well, this Republican Party is far different than the party even 10 years ago when, when she was governor and last time she was on the ballot was 2014. Uh, two things. One, the party's base is far more concerned about domestic issues than, than getting tangled up in foreign affairs. And, and they see, uh, two, they see Trump as the best person to lead this uh, modern party that's very much domestic issue focused and uh, in, in, in trench warfare. Uh, against the cultural left. As I said, the polls we see, they they show Donald Trump is the most trusted person by voters uh, on those issues.
9: As you talk to people in South Carolina, do they sound conflicted? I mean, this is Nikki Haley. They know her. They know her policies. They know her family. This is the classic hometown girl who's made it big.
29: Well, interestingly, I would say Nikki Haley ran a very good textbook campaign for usual political times, uh, but these are not the usual political times. Uh, Trump brings out what we call low propensity Republican voters. Uh, it's astounding. In, in the 2020 election cycle, we turned out about 20% more Republicans than expected. It's possible that happens again uh, in November. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's hard to understand uh, unless you, you live here and kind of see Uh, why people might have a different choice than a former governor. Uh, There's not much of a home field advantage at this point for Ambassador Haley, and there wasn't for my former uh, candidate, Tim Scott. But uh, again, I think, go ahead, indeed. Trump ran as the de facto incumbent, which I think she mentioned today, but uh, maybe sort of a badge of honor in the way that, you know, his team used the levers of power to, to really avoid a protracted, bruising political fight in this oh. primary season.
9: I mean, to the to one of the points that Nikki Haley made again today, we do not anoint kings in this country. Americans deserve a choice. What do you say to that?
29: Well, they've had plenty of choices. We, there were six or eight uh, when we started this process back last summer, uh, again, when I was with Tim Scott. Uh, and we're down to, to two now. Um, yeah, and, and the primaries will continue as we get further uh, towards the road to Milwaukee and the convention uh, this summer and potentially as, as Trump picks a vice president. But uh, that may be uh, that, that line. Uh, it didn't sit well with me, we've, we've had a fairly competitive primary season. She just happens to be the one left remaining.
9: Yeah. And just quickly, implications for beyond 2024 with Trump reshaping politics so profoundly, it sounds like in your state.
29: Yeah, as I said, Democrats should be worried this fall. I think it's easy to see a scenario where Trump wins the key swing states and returns to the White House. Um, you know, Trump's campaign rightly sees this primary season as a distraction from, from unifying the party. And you know, when you deep dive into the numbers, Republicans need to improve their standing in key areas. Uh, and Nikki Haley stands in the way of Trump doing that. Uh, so he wants to get this over as soon as possible.
9: Matt Moore. He chaired the South Carolina GOP from 2013 to 2017. Thank you.
29: Thank you.
8: Two of the nation's biggest credit card companies want to join forces. Capital One has offered to buy the company behind Discover Cards for more than $35 billion. And while the proposed deal might not change what's in your wallet, it could affect the way credit card payments are processed behind the scenes. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now to explain. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so $35 billion is a chunk of change. What does Capital One hope to get out of this very expensive deal?
30: Yeah, Capital One's already the third biggest credit card company in terms of loan volume, and adding all those Discover card holders to its table would vault it up into first place. Uh, Discover, as some of our listeners will remember, was launched way back in the 1980s by oh, yeah. Sears. Uh-huh. And it was really a pioneer in offering cash back rewards to card holders.
8: That's why my mom made me sign up for a card.
30: <laughs> Nowadays, of course, flashy rewards are a big part of the credit card universe. But what Capital One is really interested in, though, is less visible. It's that behind-the-scenes payment network that Discover has built for processing both credit and debit card payments. Here's the way Capital One CEO Rich Fairbank describes it.
5: Over four decades, they have built a global payments network that connects merchants, small businesses, and consumers in the United States and around the world. This is a valuable and rare asset
30: when you swipe your credit card at the store it's that network that tells your bank and moves the money back and forth all in exchange for a fee now, the Discover payment network is tiny compared to the behemoths Visa and MasterCard, which dominate the business. But Fairbanks sees a lot of room to grow, and that would give Capital One a more direct line to businesses that take its credit cards and perhaps more leverage in negotiating those processing fees.
8: Huh. Well, this proposed merger, I mean, it's coming at a time when more and more people are paying with credit cards, right? Like, tell us why that's happening right now.
30: Yeah, credit card payments have been climbing as a share of overall payments. That was true before the pandemic, and it accelerated in the COVID era. Card companies make money off that two ways. First, from those swipe fees that merchants pay, and then also from the interest uh, that banks charge to the credit card users who don't pay their balance every month. Last year, uh, those outstanding card balances hit a record of more than a trillion dollars, and Greg McBride, who's with bank rates, says the average interest rate on that credit card debt is more than 20%.
5: Nobody's financing purchases at 20% because everything's hunky-dory. That's a clear sign of the strain that millions of households are feeling just in terms of making ends meet.
30: About half of all credit card users do carry a balance from month to month. And McGride says those high interest rates aren't going to change no matter what happens to this proposed merger.
8: Well, how likely is it that this merger deal will go through, you
30: think? You know, it's going to get a close look. It's already gotten some opposition from community groups who worry about the impact on bank customers. The Biden administration has also taken a dim view of corporate mergers that cut down on competition. It's possible, though, that this deal might have the opposite effect, at least behind the scenes. It could actually increase competition for Visa and MasterCard on the payment network side. You know, analysts who follow the banking industry at KBW wrote this is not a slam dunk, but they do see a path for the deal to win approval. And Capital One says it hopes to close the transaction by the end of this year or early next.
8: That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you so much, Scott.
30: You're welcome.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered. El Nino, the warmer-than-average Pacific Ocean temperatures, can create milder, drier winters in parts of the Northwest and the Rockies. That heightens the risk of wildfires at a time when pay raises for Forest Service firefighters are stalled in Congress. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports.
31: Things are pretty weird this winter, at least here in central Idaho. In the mountain town of Ketchum, locals like Scott Runkle, a high school science teacher, all recount their own moments when that hit home.
5: I went down to Littlewood Reservoir in the beginning of January to go ice fishing and it wasn't
31: frozen. And that's never happened. At 5,800 feet, Runkel has been watching the winter rain, hitting the street outside a cafe with some dread. It's actually three degrees Fahrenheit warmer on average in the Rockies than it was in 1980. And scientists warn climate change could mean even stronger, warmer El Ninos like this in the future.
5: You worry about the water, the snowpack, and the farming and the fire season when the soil's drier. So it just has these snowballing effects that lead to compounding problems.
31: And in the face of these compounding problems, there's another crisis. Right now is when fire managers are staffing up for the more intense summer season. Now for years, federal firefighters have complained of low wages, but money for increased pay for some 17,000 workers has been tangled up in the congressional budget impasse since last September.
29: We need a permanent fix.
31: Lucas Mayfield is a former Forest Service firefighter who now runs an advocacy group called Grassroots Wildland Firefighters. In 2021, President Biden gave federal wildland firefighters about a $20,000 pay bump. That ran out last fall, and for now, federal agencies are maintaining the pay raises by dipping into their wildfire preparedness and suppression budgets. Mayfield says that uncertainty makes it hard to hire and keep people.
29: The workforce can't wait any longer. They're leaving. The jobs aren't being filled.
31: Before that 2021 pay bump, rookie firefighters on the front lines of this country's wildfire crisis were making about 13 bucks an hour. Federal firefighters say morale is at an all-time low and there's mass quitting going on. Abel Martinez sees this firsthand on the Angeles National Forest in Southern California, where he's an engine captain.
6: If the money goes away,
31: we're screwed. The most troubling, he says, is that veteran firefighters are leaving or retiring due to the budget impasse, including locally several fire bosses. And with them, he says, goes a lot of institutional knowledge.
16: You're losing people that have 15, 20 years of experience. Those are the people that usually make the the critical decisions on these large fires.
31: And Martinez worries that could lead to more accidents and wildfires getting even more out of control. A bill that would make the pay increases permanent did pass out of a Senate committee, which gives Lucas Mayfield of the grassroots group some hope. He's been looking out his window with alarm at Brown Dry Hills in Bozeman, Montana, where the snowpack is at a record low.
15: My opinion
29: or my soapbox is that as a country, we need to recognize and fund the efforts to address the wildland fire crisis and pay and appropriate the funds needed to get the work done.
31: The latest fiscal cliff deadline in Congress comes in early March. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Boise.
8: This is all things considered from npr news and this is
0: 90.9 wbur join us at city space wednesday march 6th a few days before the oscars for a conversation with new yorker writer michael Schulman about his book chronicling the last century of scandals drama and secrets from hollywood's biggest night tickets are at wbur.org slash events
24: WBUR supporters include Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline presenting new and classic films since 1933 with two new state-of-the-art theaters opening soon. Learn more at coolidge.org. Another nice winter day today. We should have a clear and cold night tonight about 22 degrees
0: overnight. Tomorrow about as sunny as today has been a little bit milder close to 40. Thursday bright skies again could break into the low 40s possible rain could move
24: in for Friday. 36 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.49. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit
3: MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's
8: how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa
9: Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The president of Haiti was assassinated in the middle of the night at home during the summer of 2021. Well, the people formally accused of conspiring on his murder now include his widow, also the former prime minister of Haiti, also the former national chief of police. The final report from the Haitian judge who has been investigating this case is out and it indicts some 50 people. Jacqueline Charles of the Miami Herald has seen this report. She's with us now. Good afternoon.
21: Hi, good afternoon.
9: Start with the president's widow, the then first lady, who was herself injured that night. What does this report specifically accuse her of?
21: So yes, as you mentioned, 51 individuals have been indicted by this Haitian judge. And Martin Moise is among a group of individuals who were close allies or former government officials in President Jovenel Moise's administration. And the judge points out a number of things. He points out that a couple of days before the squad of Colombians joined forces um, to take out the president, she went to the National Palace and spent five hours clearing out her things. Um, He mentions the fact that twice she has refused to go before the judge to give her side of the story. And in fact, there is an arrest warrant for her in Haiti as a result of this. But he also points out contradictions in which she has said the only interview that she has given with Haitian authorities was a few days after um, her husband was buried. And in that interview, for example, she mentioned that the accused assassins that they pulled, her toe to see if she was still alive. Well, in a few press reports that she has given, she mentioned a flashlight, which we at the Miami Hero reported that some of the Colombians who were jailed in this, you know, heavily disputed that. My sources also tell me that some of the Colombians, when they met with the judge, they also have questioned the first lady's injuries, you know, who shot her and where and how many times. And they actually wanted a confrontation with her in order to address this issue, these allegations. Yeah. Uh, the detail that stuck with me
9: was uh, the, the fact that the, the bed that she says she was hiding under was, in fact, too low to the ground for anyone to, to climb under when they actually looked at it.
21: Well, you're being kind. He actually says the bed was built in such a way that a fat rat couldn't even get under the bed uh, was was sort of his wording in French in, in this. But, yes, he, he he made a big deal about the fact that this was a platform bed and no one could hide underneath the bed.
9: And the Colombians, you mentioned this was a a squad, a cell that was that has also been caught up in the indictments on this for having actually carried out the shooting.
21: Yes, they are being named as co-authors. But again, you know, with this report, we still don't know who actually fired the fatal blows or which gun killed the president. And, And that is where their report falls very short, because like the parallel investigation in the United States, there are still many questions about, you know, who is the chief mastermind if there is one? And again, who fired the fatal blow? Because the Colombians all deny that they were the ones who actually shot and killed the president.
9: I gather the former chief of police actually fares pretty horribly in this indictment as well. What is he accused of?
21: So, yes, so Leon Charles, let me just say Martin, Leon Charles and Claude Joseph, the former prime minister, have all denied any involvement and they are basically saying that this is, you know, the current government tramping on justice. But Leon Charles, the argument that is raised there is that he was among the people the president of Moïse called in distress saying, come, save me, help me. And uh, there was 18 minutes between when Leon Charles received the call from the president and when the president contacted another one of his security officials and that there was no rapid deployment that was made. Charles did not take himself to the scene. And in his defense, Charles mentioned um, deploying another top official to the president's aid, Well, that individual will testify that he actually got the call from the president. It was at 146, and he had to get off the phone with Charles in order to rush to the president's aid. We actually broke the story on Jovenel Moise's last few minutes, and he was indeed calling a number of his top security officials, including Leon Charles, to come to help him, and nobody arrived in time.
9: What about a motive? Does the report have anything to say on that?
21: The report doesn't make clear motive, but what it says in indicting the first lady and people close to the president is that this was a power grab, that the gold here, and and it's quoting, you know, certain witnesses and individuals who claim that everyone sort of knew quietly around the president that there was going to be this attempt to arrest him and they played on to that. Now there was never any evidence or any announcement that Jovenel Moïse was even going to be arrested, but the goal was that Martin Moïse would eventually become president. That Claude Joseph, who was the outgoing prime minister at the time because President Moïse had already decided that he would choose Ariel Henry, the current prime minister and that Claude Joseph would hold on to power and then hold an election in a few months and then Martin. Moise will be made president. That is sort of what they allude to here. But again, what you see in this indictment that there are plots and subplots, because we don't see anything that says that the former first lady or people around the president who were close to him, that they actually met with any of the 11 defendants who have been charged in the parallel U.S. investigation. We do see some overlap, but you, you never see where you put them in the room and that there was just one big conspiracy. Plots
9: and subplots indeed. Have any of the people who stand accused in this indictment, have they responded?
21: Yes, we quoted Claude Joseph yesterday, who again at the time was the prime minister. His quote to us was basically that the current prime minister, Ariel Henry, is the main beneficiary. um, And he even goes out and accuses him of being the mastermind, which of course Henry denies. But Claude Joseph is calling this a classic coup d'etat. And he says, they failed to kill me and Martine Moise on July 7th, 2021. Now they're using the Haitian justice system to advance their Machiavellian agenda.
9: So where does all this go next? What's the timeline on this going to
21: court? So under Haitian law, all of these individuals, all 51 of them, including the Colombians, they have a right to appeal this indictment, right? And as the Haitian justice system goes, and as Haiti goes, as we know that this is a country right now, um, it's very volatile, gang ridden, things don't work very quickly. And so it can be up until next year where we see some resolution if you're lucky on the issue of the appeal but the fact that the judge has now completed this report after two and a half years and five judges that is significant but the stakes are high Uh, the chief justice is supposed to actually set a trial date but i am not holding my breath really that we will be going to trial in a year or two
9: Jacqueline Charles of the Miami Herald, thanks for your reporting.
21: Thanks for having me.
8: all things considered from NPR News.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru who along with its retailers is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes and socks. Subaru more than a car company. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows, available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. We're in the midst of a string of sunny midwinter days. Mostly clear skies tonight. Pretty cold again down around 22. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, dry, a bit milder. Temperatures in the upper 30s. Thursday, yet another sunny day. Could make it to the low 40s. 35 degrees now in Boston at 459.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years, part-time, for experienced professionals seeking data research skills. Info session on February 21st. And Boston Gay Men's Chorus, presenting Melodies for a Movement, honoring Tyler Clemente's life with Anne Hampton Calloway performing, March 16th, BGMC.org.
8: I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos created during in vitro fertilization, or IVF, are children, and discarding the embryos could be a crime.
32: If embryos are persons under this ruling, that could have pretty profound downstream complications for how IVF is performed.
0: This is WBUR's All Things Considered. More on the potential impact of the decision coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Protesters in Israel are blaming their prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, for not doing more to free the hostages still being held by Hamas.
6: He decided to don't come back to the negotiation because the demand are too high. We'll hear
0: more from an Israeli man who's determined to see his family reunited.
6: It's 5.01, news
0: headlines and Wall Street numbers are next.
33: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The United States has vetoed another U.N. Security Council resolution on Gaza, rejecting calls for an immediate ceasefire. NPR's Michelle Kellman reports Washington has promised its own draft.
10: The draft resolution that Algeria proposed would have demanded an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says doing that without requiring Hamas to release
4: hostages would not bring about a durable peace. While we cannot support a resolution that would put sensitive negotiations in jeopardy. We look forward to engaging on a text that we believe will address so many of the concerns we all share.
10: The U.S. draft supports a temporary ceasefire based on a hostage deal. Thomas Greenfield says diplomats are working on a deal that would bring about a six-week pause in fighting. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
33: A South Carolina woman is sharing her story as she sues the state over its abortion ban. Taylor Shelton says the ban is vague and forced her to travel out of state. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen has more.
0: Taylor Shelton is in her 20s and was using birth control
28: when she got pregnant. Just after an abortion ban took effect in South Carolina,
0: lawmakers say the ban begins at about six weeks. But a lawsuit filed by Shelton and Planned Parenthood this month argues the law could be read to mean at least nine weeks. Shelton says the extra time could have saved her from having to travel to North Carolina for an abortion. It was unnecessary, and it was. It was traumatizing. I was confused the whole way. Shelton's suit seeks clarification of the ban. The state attorney general's office says it has defended the law in the past and will
28: continue to do so. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Charleston,
26: South Carolina.
33: Prosecutors in Kansas City Missouri have charged two men with murder in last week's shooting that killed one person and wounded 22 others after the Kansas City Chiefs' Super Bowl parade. Dominic M. Miller and Lindell Mays are charged with second-degree murder, among other charges. Some parts of Southern California have seen more than a year's worth of rain in just the past few weeks. From member station at LAist in Los Angeles, Jacob Margolis has more.
31: Residents are getting a bit of a break right now. but forecasters say heavy bands of rain are expected to pick back up into Wednesday. The worry is thunderstorms, because they can drop a ton of rain at once, oversaturating already wet hills, causing landslides. A number of small ones have disrupted traffic already. Forecasters are also saying there's a small chance of tornadoes along the coast, with winds between 60 to 80 miles per hour. They only last a few minutes before getting broken up by mountainous terrain, but they can have an impact. Like last year, when a tornado touched down, damaging buildings in the Compton area. Things should dry out by Thursday. For NPR
33: News, I'm Jacob Margolis in Los Angeles. That was down 64 points today. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Moore Healy says Stewart HealthCare has violated state law by withholding financial records from regulators for years. In a letter issued today, Healy gave the Texas-based company three days to produce the information. She didn't say what would happen if it doesn't. Stewart is now under state supervision after it disclosed serious financial challenges that could jeopardize its operations at its nine Massachusetts hospitals. Healy wants the company to transfer operations of the hospitals to other organizations and leave the state. There's been no response yet from Stewart. Cryptocurrency attorney John Deaton is launching a bid against Elizabeth Warren for her seat in the U.S. Senate. Deaton is a U.S. Marine veteran from Michigan who moved to the Bay State less than a month ago. During his campaign announcement by video this morning, the 56-year-old Republican says he believes there should be term limits for career politicians.
6: Elizabeth Warren, well, she promised to be a champion for those in need. Instead, she gives lectures and plays politics and gets nothing done for Massachusetts.
0: Elizabeth Warren was elected to the Senate in 2012. The Environmental Protection Agency is awarding $151 million to the state for water infrastructure upgrades. Governor Healy says the money will help the state's most vulnerable communities make necessary upgrades to provide safe and reliable drinking water. The funds will also be used to upgrade sewage systems and remove contaminants such as PFAS chemicals from drinking water. Massachusetts high schoolers had the best advancement, advanced placement exam scores in the country. That's according to newly released data from AP exam administrator the College Board. More than 31 percent of the class of 2023 scored at least three out of a five on an AP exam during high school. Massachusetts also had one of the largest 10-year gains of the percentage of Latino and Black students taking the exams. Governor Healy says she's proud of both the students and educators for the results. In the forecast today, looked a lot like yesterday, and tomorrow should look a lot like today. Sunny skies with highs in the mid-30s, tomorrow in the low to mid-40s on Thursday. 35 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.07.
7: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
8: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And
9: I'm Mary Louise Kelly
8: in Washington.
9: Nikki Haley says she is staying in the presidential race regardless of what happens in her home state's Republican primary this weekend.
1: South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere.
9: Today, the former South Carolina governor directed some of her sharpest attacks yet at former President Trump, also at President Biden during what her campaign called a state of the race speech. Well, NPR Sarah McCammon has been covering the Haley campaign. She's with us. And Sarah, more detail, please, on what
3: Haley's message was today. Yeah, so Haley is trying to push back against the idea that she is not long for this presidential campaign. She's facing what looks like it could be a big, rather embarrassing loss this weekend in her home state of South Carolina. She's, of course, been trailing Trump in the polls, and she has yet to win a nominating contest. And she alluded to all of that in this speech, but she blamed what she called the party elite for pushing her to get out of the race. Haley said that Trump would like to run unopposed and that
1: Trump has intimidated most of the party into supporting him. The pressure on them was way too much. They didn't want to be left out of the club. Of course, many of the same politicians who now publicly embrace Trump privately dread him. They know what a disaster he's been and will continue to be for our party. They're just too afraid to say it out loud.
3: And Haley's message is that she's not afraid and that she, as she put it, feels no need to kiss the ring.
9: Not kissing the ring. Okay, what about Trump? How is he shooting back at all this?
3: Well, despite the fact that Trump appears to be so far ahead of Haley, her decision to defy him and stay in this race seems to be getting under his skin. You know, he released a new attack ad today targeting her, trying to paint her as dishonest. And he's been stepping up attacks on Haley and her family in recent weeks. But Haley's message is that none of that bothers her and she is staying in. But
9: Sarah, say more about that. What is her rationale? Why stay in at this point in a race when
3: she's trailing so far behind? Well, her argument is that the country is facing significant challenges at home and abroad, and that neither Trump nor President Biden are up to the task. She also used this moment to correct the record, and she said she's not trying to run to be Trump's vice president, as some have speculated, or to build a platform for a future presidential run. She argues that she is the right candidate for right now. She said that Trump was the right candidate in the past, but as she put it, he's getting, quote, meaner and more offensive by the day. And then she was even more critical of President Biden. She sort of ping-ponged between criticizing the two of them and described
1: them as two old men who are only getting older. We're talking about the most demanding job in human history. You don't give it to someone who's at risk of dementia.
3: Now, this has been a major theme of Haley stump speech for a while now. She's really been trying to run, perhaps because she can't get traction against Trump, against both Trump and Biden, and reminding voters that, according to polls, this likely rematch is not one that many people want.
9: Okay, so give us a few things to watch for in these next few days running up to the primary there in South Carolina.
3: So early voting is already underway. It began February 12th, continues through Thursday. Trump's campaign is holding several events this week in South Carolina. He's expected to be back in the state later in the week ahead of the primary on Saturday. Haley's in the midst of a two-week bus tour trying to close that gap with Trump. And one reason she may be staying in is she has the money to do that for a while. Her campaign says they had their strongest fundraising month yet in January when they brought in more than $16 million. Haley said today she's going to be campaigning until the last person votes. And Pierre Sarah McCammon, thanks, Sarah. Thank you.
8: Frozen embryos are people. And you can be held legally responsible if you destroy them. At least that is what the Alabama Supreme Court ruled on Friday. The decision could have wide-ranging implications for in vitro fertilization clinics and for hopeful parents out there. To talk more about the legal implications, we're joined now by Mary Ziegler, professor of law at UC Davis. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. So before we get to the actual ruling, can you just briefly explain the situation that led to the lawsuit, which was eventually brought to the state Supreme Court in Alabama?
32: Absolutely. There, there were three couples that had pursued in vitro fertilization treatment at a clinic in Mobile, Alabama, And uh, at a point in 2020, uh, a hospital patient, uh, the hospital was operated by the same clinic, entered the place where frozen embryos were stored, handled some of the embryos, uh, burned his hand, dropped the embryos and destroyed them. And this led to a lawsuit from the three couples. Uh, They had a variety of theories in the suit, one of which was that the state's wrongful death of a minor law treated those frozen embryos as children or persons. Uh, And the Alabama Supreme Court agreed with them in that in this Friday decision.
8: You know, it's worth noting that this lawsuit, it was a wrongful death lawsuit, meaning it was brought by couples who were mourning the accidental destruction of the embryos and wanting to hold someone responsible for that destruction. That said, what do you see as the wider ranging or perhaps unintended consequences for IVF clinics in Alabama, IVF providers after this ruling?
32: Well, if embryos are persons under this ruling, that could have pretty profound downstream complications for how IVF has performed. So in IVF, generally, more embryos are created than are implanted. They're stored. Sometimes they're donated or destroyed, depending on the wishes of the people pursuing IVF. If an embryo is a person, it's obviously not clear that it's permissible to donate that embryo for research or to destroy it, it may not even be possible to create embryos you don't implant in a particular IVF cycle. So in other words, some anti-abortion groups argue that if an embryo is a person, every single embryo created has to be implanted either in that person who's pursuing IVF or some other parent who or person, they would call it a parent who quote unquote adopts the embryo. So As a result of that, um, it may radically change how IVF works, how cost effective it is, and how um, effective it is in allowing people to achieve their dream of parenthood.
8: I mean, can you offer some examples, some expectations that you think we might see in how IVF providers in Alabama might change the way they operate?
32: Well, if, if Alabama IVF providers feel obligated to implant every embryo they create, that's likely to both reduce the chances that any IVF cycle will be successful. It also might make it a lot more expensive. IVF is already very expensive. Um, I think the average being between about $15,000 and $20,000 per IVF cycle. Uh, Many patients don't succeed with IVF um, after one cycle, but if you were not allowed to create um, more than one embryo per cycle, that's likely to make IVF even more financially out of reach for people uh, who don't have insurance coverage Um, and who struggle to to pay that hefty price tag. And what is
8: the likelihood of this case heading to the U.S. Supreme Court?
32: It's pretty low because of the way the Alabama Supreme Court framed its decision. It grounded it very firmly in Alabama state constitutional law. And so I think this is the kind of ruling that could eventually have um, some reverberation at the U.S. Supreme Court, but it's very unlikely to be appealed directly to the U.S. Supreme Court.
8: Well, if the ruling in this case was very much confined to Alabama state law, as you describe, what are the wider implications of this ruling for people who don't live in Alabama? What do you see? Well, I think there's been a
32: broader strategy. The sort of next Roe v. Wade, if you will, for the anti-abortion movement is a recognition that a fetus or embryo is a person for all purposes, right? particularly for the purposes of the federal constitution. And while this isn't a case about the federal constitution, I think you'll see the anti-abortion movement making a gradual case that the more state courts, the more state laws recognize a fetus or embryo as a person for different circumstances and reasons, the more compelling they can say, is the case for fetal personhood under the Constitution, right? The more Mm -hmm. compelling is their argument that a fetus is a rights holder and that liberal abortion laws or state abortion rights are impermissible.
8: Mary Ziegler, professor of law at UC Davis. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
9: Baristas at another 21 Starbucks stores filed petitions for union elections today. That's the most in one day since the union campaign got going more than two and a half years ago. NPR's Andrea Hsu reports.
26: At Starbucks store number 24964 in Little Rock, Arkansas, there was not originally a whole lot of interest in organizing a union. A big reason, says Lyra Jackson, was that employees at non-union stores were getting raises and new benefits, part of Starbucks's response to the organizing campaign.
20: There was definitely a little bit of an attitude of... Well, the union's already making things better for us without us having to do anything. Maybe we can just sit here and let the union fight the fight and we're going to get the benefits anyway.
26: Jackson says that changed in recent months as employees have grappled with unpredictable hours and some even lost benefits because they were not working enough hours. Now, Starbucks says this can happen, but that it has an online system that workers can use to pick up additional hours. And then last month came a snowstorm. Schools in Little Rock were closed, but Starbucks workers were expected to get to work. And some who couldn't receive disciplinary notices, says Jackson, who notes the store was short-staffed, but hardly anyone was going out for coffee.
20: (laughs) I remember being there and it being a day that we focused on cleaning a lot of stuff because we barely had any customers.
26: Jackson says if workers had a union, they could fight for changes to the attendance policies and for guaranteed minimum hours. But to date, contract talks the nearly 400 unionized Starbucks stores have stalled. Starbucks and the union blame each other for the lack of progress. Alex Hurdle fernandez of Columbia University says the lack of a contract is a real impediment for the union effort, especially in a high turnover sector like Starbucks.
23: The longer that employers drag this out and the more they use turnover as a strategy to get those union-friendly workers out of the store and with new workers in the store, the more they can damp down on the momentum that the unions have enjoyed.
26: Now, Starbucks denied it has any kind of anti-union playbook. In a statement, the company said it respects the rights of its employees to organize, and that it aims to ensure that its employees' voices are heard. Employees at the 21 news stores that are trying to organize will soon test that. In dozens of cases involving other stores, federal labor judges have found Starbucks unlawfully interfered with union organizing. Starbucks is appealing those findings. Andrea Hsu, NPR News.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered
0: from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Coming up at 5:50, a UK court began hearing arguments on whether WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange can appeal his extradition to the United States. That story and much more still ahead.
18: WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres, starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston.
0: On Wall Street, the major indices lost ground in trading today. The Dow gave up almost two-tenths of a percent at the closing bell. S&P gave up six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down more than nine-tenths of a percent. Needham-based TripAdvisor says it let go 118 employees last year. That's 11 percent of its U.S. workforce. In a report filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission today, TripAdvisor said it has more than 2,800 employees worldwide. About one-third of them are based in the U.S. Company leaders said last year they were initiating layoffs in order to cut costs. The forecast is coming up.
18: WBUR supporters include Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures Talk at LizLinder.com. In the forecast,
0: mostly clear sky tonight. Pretty cold again, down around 22 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny, breezy, and dry, a lot like today, but a little bit milder. Temperatures in the upper 30s. For Thursday, yet another sunny day could make it to the low to mid 40s, and it's possible that we could see some rain moving in by Friday. 35 degrees now in Boston at 520.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth, Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at quill.com And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur
8: Foundation, at Macfound.com. Dot .org From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang
34: and I'm Ari Shapiro. When the writer Philip B. Williams was a kid, he heard about certain family practices.
35: You could call them superstitions, folklore, or even magic. A story that was told to me by my mother about her father involved kind of conjuration where he would salt his thresholds in order to keep what is considered dark spirits out of the house it's this idea that sea salt can either burn a bad spirit or distract them as they're counting the grain so that they can't actually enter your house and um i was raised with an idea that a lot of things are possible
34: Philip B. Williams weaves that idea through his debut novel, Ours, O-U-R-S. It is a sprawling American epic spanning decades. Many of the characters use herbs, roots, or stones to bring people safety or harm. At the heart of the story is a woman named Saint. She uses her powers to free enslaved people and build a town for them, hidden from the outside world. The place is called Ours. Saint is
35: (laughs) difficult to describe she seems to be in control but she's not necessarily in control she likes to have control she likes to have privacy and for the most part one can say that she is benign until you cross her the trouble is crossing her could be anything um, <laughs> you never know exactly what she will take offense by. She's mercurial in that way. She's also extraordinarily passionate and loving.
34: Earlier in the book, she seems like almost a superhero. She destroys plantations and the enslavers who live on them. She frees the Black people who were living there and brings them to freedom. It is such an unequivocal kind of embodiment of a fantasy of what might have happened if superheroes existed in that time?
35: There are, you know, parallels. People might think Harriet Tubman. They might think of the Haitian Revolution, where there were no superheroes, but there were people who took up the the, the mantle of hero, right? And they didn't do it alone. They did it with um, assistance. But yes, yeah, she does it with a lot more ease.
34: <laughs> you were a poet before you were a novelist. And so... It's not surprising that there are some really beautifully written lines in the book. And I'd love you to tell us about one that comes right near the beginning, where Saint has just freed a man from slavery, and she says to him, don't ever try to touch your chains again. You might get
35: rust on your priceless skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She does not believe in thinking about the past and focusing on the past it sullies the self, it sullies the spirit in her belief system. And so to to interact with anything that had tried to destroy you means that you want to be destroyed. It means that you want to remain in what held you captive and in what stained every part of your, your being. And so she says that to keep him from playing with the detritus that had enchained his, his body, mind, and spirit. Hmm. So much of the book
34: is about how to be free and what it means to be free. And there's a really poignant exchange between two close friends named Justice and Luther Philip.
35: Mm-hmm. Could you read this passage? He spoke aloud one of the hurts meant to be his most concealed. I don't think I'm being free the right way no right way to be free our mothers didn't know freedom longer than we did my father wasn't born free neither was yours mine's still finding out how to be free and he don't even leave the house none let alone ours how we supposed to learn from them when they never been free long enough to tell us how to do it no right way to be free that's why it's called free you make all the right and wrong with it as you want just be mindful of how much of each.
34: First, I just have to say, wow, you read that so beautifully. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I hope you read the audiobook.
35: <laughs> I do not read the audiobook. Well,
34: I would listen to you read the audiobook. That idea of no right way to be free almost feels to me like a distillation of the entire book. Mm-hmm.
35: Did you see it that way? I did. I did. And part of me wanted to move it later or just take it out because I thought it was... Telegraphing too much. I thought it telegraphed too much, but no, this is definitely a book where everyone has to find their own path. And because of the circumstances allowed to them by saint, they are given the opportunity to do that and to see just how challenging it can be.
34: And does that apply to people who were not just liberated from slavery, who are not the children of enslaved people? Do you think it applies to those of us living in 2024?
35: Absolutely. I think we don't necessarily know what to do with ourselves. We are born into whatever our circumstances are and we have to figure out with guidance, hopefully, what our path is, what is possible for us. The only thing that, and this is part of the warning, is you make all the right and wrong with it as you want. You just have to be mindful with how much of each is to not get in someone else's way as they try to pursue their freedom to make sure that there is a balance between you know the mistakes that you made and the lessons you learned from those mistakes. So yeah, we're all trying to figure out how to be our best selves, our free selves, also in a world where there are others for whom our freedom is seen as a threat. So, yes, I think we are still very much living in that that location, right that kind of logic of there's no right way to do it, but it's still a challenge
34: and What's interesting about the people who live in the town of ours is that they're concealed from the outside world, and so it the is. people who see their freedom as a threat don't have to be a factor,
35: and yet <laughs>
34: and yet the problems don't go away
35: they don't go away. They don't go away. They still have to interact with one another. They still have to deal with the, the experiences that they had when they were not there, right? When they were on a plantation, when they were enslaved, when they were used and, uh, and harmed. And for their new generation, the children of those, they have to build this kind of lexicon and, ex- and experience around freedom without necessarily having someone to guide them. But they don't have someone to say... You do this, this, and this, because I did that. Uh, Everyone is learning, and they all have a similar learning curve, but they have different histories. So trauma is affecting everyone very differently. This is a
34: long book. It's nearly 600 pages. And you have said that the length is not incidental to the story. It is an essential part of it.
35: Can you explain that? I wanted to write an epic because I wanted them to have all the space to have their stories developed. I do not believe there is a main character, though there is a character, a couple of characters who are linchpins, but so that everyone could have their plot lines fulfilled, they can have their aspirations known and their voices heard. And I believe epic stories are stories, yes, about heroes, but also about communities. And so it was very important for me to craft-wise create something that honored
34: that history Philip B. Williams it has been so good talking with you thank you very much thank you it's it's an honor (laughs) his debut novel is Ours
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 25 minutes, a surge in overdose deaths among teenagers is opening opportunities for pediatricians to help with treatment. A doctor in Massachusetts is testing this path, prescribing addiction treatment medication to a 17-year-old. Martha Biebinger's story is coming up at 5.55. This is 90.9 WBUR. Mostly clear skies tonight. Pretty cold once again, down around 22 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny, breezy, dry, a little bit milder, temperatures in the upper 30s. Thursday, sunny yet again, could make it to the low to mid-40s. 35 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.30.
28: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And The Huntington with John Proctor is the villain in which lively teens explore the crucible now through March 10th at the Huntington Calderwood Pavilion. huntingtontheater.org.
20: What happens if a factory in West Virginia is making people in Pennsylvania sick? Air pollution doesn't respect state borders. The Clean Air Act requires states to protect the health of the people downwind of them, even if they're in a different state. Now, the decades-old requirement is coming before the U.S. Supreme Court. The future of the so-called good neighbor provision, tomorrow on Morning
25: Edition from NPR News.
3: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
25: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. New actions are coming from the Biden administration targeting Russia as its full-scale invasion of neighboring Ukraine passes the two-year mark this week. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, speaking during a phone conference today, said the new sanctions were approved by President Biden after the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny late last week.
7: This is another turn of the crank, another turn of the wheel, um, and it is a range of targets, a significant range of targets. Uh, that we have worked persistently and diligently to identify to continue to impose costs for what Russia has done, for what it's done to Navalny, for what it's done to Ukraine, and for the threat that it represents uh, to international
25: peace and security. Sullivan says the Russian sanctions will be formally announced on Friday to coincide with the second anniversary of Russia's war against Ukraine. The latest actions would expand on the already stiff sanctions the U.S. and its allies have put on Moscow. The founder of the website WikiLeaks is trying to avoid extradition to the U.S. Julian Assange is pressing his case in a British court, as NPR's Lauren Freyer tells us. He faces espionage charges here for publishing classified
36: documents. U.S.-U.K. hands off Assange, protesters chanted outside London's High Court. Inside, two judges are hearing two days of arguments over whether Assange is allowed a final appeal, even though the U.K. government has already signed an extradition order. The U.S. wants to put Assange, an Australian citizen, on trial for espionage for WikiLeaks' 2010 publication of hundreds of thousands of secret documents related to U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Defense lawyers call Assange a publisher, and say this case criminalizes journalism. They say they'll ask the European Court of Human Rights to intervene if UK judges rule against him. This is
25: NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. School officials in Newton say about 50 to 70 percent of students showed up for school today. February break was canceled this week in the district to make up for class time lost to the teachers' strike earlier this year. The school system says it needs to ensure that it can offer students the state-mandated 180 school days before the end of June. Rakashi Shand says her children's classrooms were half full today, adding that teachers avoided covering new material.
17: There is a a
26: strange feeling in the air knowing that everybody else in Massachusetts is on vacation this week, uh, except for us.
0: (laughs) Newton School District officials have said that they may also take a few days out of the April vacation to make up for the lost school days. Kathy Judd-Stein is stepping down as the chair of the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. Adam Frenier reports she will leave next month at the end of her term.
25: Judd-Stein was appointed to the job by then-Governor Charlie Baker in 2019. During her tenure, she led the commission through some challenging issues, including the temporary shutdown of the state's casinos due to the pandemic and the rollout of sports betting. Judd Stein praised the team at the MGC for their work during her time, and she was asked what advice she had for her successor.
36: There's no particular um, blueprint for the job. It's an exciting opportunity where important issues that affect the public and private interests of the Commonwealth intercept.
25: Governor Maura Healy thanked Judd Stein for her efforts and said she looked forward to finding an experienced leader to chair the commission. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Freinier.
0: Governor Healy will greet First Lady Jill Biden when Biden arrives in Boston this evening. The First Lady is giving a speech tomorrow in Cambridge
24: that will focus on women's health research. The forecast is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org.
0: New England Patriots' Matthew Slater is retiring after 16 seasons with the Pats. He announced his decision on social media today, thanking fans for their support. And UMass Lowell will honor a native son who was the first pro-black basketball player. Harry Bucky Lou played for the Pawtucketville Athletic Club in Lowell in 1902. He was also the first black coach of an integrated basketball team when he was at Lowell Textile School. One of Lou's granddaughters will be at the celebration Thursday night. Overnight tonight, pretty cold, down around 22 degrees. Then tomorrow, sunny, dry, breezy once again. High temperatures in the upper 30s. 34 degrees now in Boston at 535.
19: Support for NPR comes from the station and from BritBox with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Workday, with AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The world's eyes are on Gaza, as the death toll now exceeds 29,000. That's according to Gaza health officials. 1,200 people were killed in the October 7th attack by Hamas. That is what launched this whole war, according to Israel. And families of the remaining hostages worry that they are being forgotten.
33: Bring them home now!
8: Protests in Tel Aviv and other cities continue every week, blaming Israel's government for not doing more to free the hostages. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has this report.
37: I sit down with 82-year-old Yishai Dan at a cafe in his tree-lined town of Sava, about a half hour north of Tel Aviv.
6: I accept to talk with everyone and I go to every place.
37: Dan has been on a mission since Hamas-led militants kidnapped his niece Hadass Calderon along with her husband and two children from Kibbutz near Oz on October 7th. She's the daughter of his only brother who also lived in near Oz and died five years ago.
6: Uri Dan, his name, he worked a lot for the peace. He used to bring from Gaza to hospital people by his car because they, they don't have money and they, they can do it alone. And uh, he has a lot of friends that work in the kibbutz that come from Gaza.
37: Calderon and her children were released in November as part of a ceasefire and hostage prisoner exchange between Hamas and Israel. Husband and father Ofer Calderon is still being held. Don says the hostage families fear that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is scuttling chances for another ceasefire.
6: He decided to don't come back to the negotiation because the demand are too high. But we don't understand the word too high for the people that was left without army, without nothing. They were sleeping or dancing. He have to bring them back.
37: Israel never even left a soldier's body behind, says Dan. How can it abandon its citizens? He says the hostage families hate Hamas, but not the Palestinian people.
6: We need peace. We need peace. All both of the country. And I think that the solution of the American is the best. Say two country, two people. Quatre mois,
33: jour pour jour.
37: A few weeks ago, French President Emmanuel Macron held a ceremony in Paris to pay homage to the 42 Israeli-French dual citizens who lost their lives in the Hamas attack. As French soldiers held portraits of the victims, an orchestra played Kaddish, Maurice Ravel's musical version of the Jewish prayer for the dead. Dan and the other families attended, flown over on a French government plane.
6: Wonderful, wonderful. It was something that really gave me a proudness to be also French.
37: Dan says Israel's government has given no such recognition to the hostage families. Israeli critics of Netanyahu say his stated goal of total victory undermines any chance of securing the hostage's release and is pandering to his hard right base. Three months after their release, Dan says the Calderon family is struggling. 12 year old Erez has trouble sleeping.
6: His mother had to show him, to open the door outside to show him, no Hamazer. He was 60 days alone in the night, black day and night, all the time, alone.
37: Erez's 16 year old sister, Sahar, had a different yet equally harrowing experience in the tunnels.
6: All the other hostage. Ostrich- all the time was around her and don't leave the Hamas to, to come too close to her. They know what can happen, so they don't leave her any minutes.
37: She was the last member of the family to see her father.
6: Ofre is a very good father. They love him and they, they want him back.
37: Israel says 134 people remain captive in Gaza. Eleanor Beardsley in PR News, Kafar Sava, Israel.
9: Black communities across the U.S. have grappled with big changes due to rising interest in their neighborhoods. Now, those shifts are not just cold economics. Sometimes they are also about art. Nick Swartzell from member Station WVXU reports from Cincinnati.
38: A three-story mural of President Barack Obama looked over Cincinnati's West End from a restaurant called Ollie's Trolley for more than a decade. It was one of dozens artist William Rankins Jr. painted across the city's black communities. The mural's portrayed prominent local and national figures and people who lived in those communities. But time and redevelopment in Cincinnati's urban core have claimed most of them. That's painful for Rankin's.
18: Y'all gonna paint over me too? You know, that's how I feel. You know, it's like they just taking me off the map.
38: Rankin's and Ollie's owner, Marvin Smith, chat below a stark black wall where the Obama painting was. Smith had to repair the wall in 2019 and couldn't save the mural. Rankin's is 68. He lost his eyesight to a stroke a decade ago. He asked Smith about a mural he did in the 1990s.
13: And let me ask you this, Marvin. Is the Bubbles Coin Laundry still got Bubbles Coin Laundry on the back on the market side? No,
25: it's completely painted. The, the painted
38: courtyard paint. around Ollie's is one of the last places you can see Rankin's murals. There's former Cincinnati Mayor Mark Mallory, part of a Black West End political dynasty, looking down from a second story perch. One of many other murals there shows a family from the neighborhood. The future is cloudy for these works, too. Rankin's asks Smith whether he'll accept recent offers he's gotten for his property.
4: What are you gonna do about the property, man? You gonna move it somewhere else? I'm considering two options. One, take the money and move it to another location, or redo this.
38: Black communities across the country have seen big changes. Cincinnati's over-the-rhine community neighbors Ollie's trolley and featured many of Rankin's murals. Recent census data shows the neighborhood lost 43% of its Black population last decade. University of Cincinnati urban history professor Dr. Anne Delano-Steinert says much of the redevelopment there has been aimed at people with higher incomes.
36: What that unfortunately has done is has made it a place that's disorienting and unfamiliar to longtime residents.
38: A few years ago, Cincinnati's major league soccer team built its stadium just south of Ollie's in the historically Black West End. Recently, the team demolished a building featuring Rankin's murals to make way for another development. Meanwhile, the city's taste for murals has grown. Since 2019, a biannual arts festival called Blink has drawn internationally known muralists and millions of visitors. Curator, arts writer, and educator Maria Sita Reeder says something extra sets Rankin's work
22: apart amazing muralists from outside of a neighborhood. They don't necessarily have that connection to the community, but Rankins did, you know, he was from that community, making work about that community.
38: Those connections mean a lot to Rankins.
18: You riding by, you know, with your girlfriend or your family, oh, that's me right there, you know, that that gives him a sense of pride, you know.
38: Smith says his business has boomed since the stadium came in, and he credits the soccer team for working with the community but he worries many people in the West End might not benefit from its resurgence.
4: It seems like whenever development comes to your neighborhood, they develop the people right out of the neighborhood.
38: A caseworker helps Rankin's paint on canvas these days. She hopes someone can partner with him to help him keep creating, even as his murals fade into memory. For
8: NPR News, I'm Nick Swartzel. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A new law in Indiana will open up more of the state's protected wetlands for development. As Ethan Sandweiss of member station WFIU reports, environmental groups are worried that the measure will harm the state's wildlife and water quality.
23: John Lawrence guides me through ankle-deep water surrounded by high reeds at Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve in southern Indiana. He's CEO of Sycamore Land Trust, a nonprofit restoring these wetlands.
38: And then if you just look a little bit to your right and up, you can see another adult bald eagle on a tree snag.
23: Oh, wow. You see it there? I do. Cool. Before European settlement, nearly a quarter of Indiana was wetland. Since then, it's lost 85% to development and agriculture. Areas like Bean Blossom Bottoms that are owned by land trusts are among the few protected wetlands in the state after a series of policy decisions in recent years. State lawmakers removed protections for many wetlands in 2021 and this year they shrank that number even more. Indra Frank, Director of Environmental Health and Water Policy for the Hoosier Environmental Council, says the destruction of wetlands has sped up in recent years.
21: During that two-year period, we lost at least 261 million gallons of water storage from the state because of the wetlands that were destroyed during that time.
23: Besides being a habitat for plant and animal species, wetlands provide benefits such as water retention during droughts, water filtration and flood control. The town of Tipton, Indiana, was heavily flooded in 2013 after wetlands were removed from the Cicero Creek watershed upstream.
21: During dry periods of the year, wetlands re-release water. Really, wetlands are the most cost-effective stormwater management infrastructure there is.
23: A U.S. Supreme Court ruling last summer removed most federal protections for isolated wetlands, leaving it up to the states. Environmentalists and developers both say the system is unclear and makes permitting difficult. Builders who support the new law say it provides new opportunities for construction and could drive down home prices, which have still risen since Indiana first relaxed wetland protections three years ago. The bill incentivizes developers to replace wetlands they clear elsewhere. Rick Watchda, CEO of the Indiana Builders Association. We look at every
30: issue as ways to how can we reduce those regulatory costs on our builders, which means that they may be able to bring a product to the market at a lower price and pass along those savings to potential home
23: buyers. The law's remaining protections are mostly for ecosystems that are quote, undisturbed or minimally disturbed by human activity. Rochelle Baker of the Indiana Wetlands Association says that leaves a lot of room for interpretation.
8: This is Indiana. The chances of you running into one of those wetland types that has not already been more than minimally impacted is pretty slim.
23: Representatives from the building industry and the Indiana Department of Environmental Management drafted the bill last summer. Advocates say the bill was rushed through the state house and didn't take enough input from environmental organizations and wetland experts. Republican Senator Sue Glick of LaGrange was one of the few voices of dissent in her party.
28: I will not be
32: voting for this bill because I think it has some serious shortcomings which might have been resolved had everyone been a part of the discussions.
23: Walking here in Bean Blossom Bottoms, John Lawrence with the Sycamore Land Trust has no comment on the new law. He says his organization doesn't get into politics. He's focused on saving what he can.
38: Preserving wetlands like this, as large as it seems when you walk around, it's just a fraction of what would have been here a couple of hundred years ago. It's more important for us to, as a land trust, do what we can to protect these special natural areas.
23: For NPR News, I'm Ethan Sandweiss in Bloomington.
9: This is All
0: Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Misinformation about the 2020 election was rampant, and that has election officials laying the groundwork now to help their communities and the nation have confidence in the results this November. A special report on election integrity tonight at 6.30 right here at 90.9 WBUR. Keep listening. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum
28: of Science with Changing Landscapes and Immersive Journey, a new exhibit transporting you to iconic spots around the globe, MOS.org.
0: In the forecast, mostly clear skies tonight. Pretty cold once again, down to around 22 degrees. And for tomorrow, sunny, breezy, dry, a little bit milder. Temperatures in the upper 30s. Thursday, yet another sunny day could make it to the low to mid 40s. It's 549.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Coolidge Corner Theater, a cultural treasure in the heart of Brookline since 1933. Experience the best contemporary and classic films in two new state-of-the-art theaters and enjoy film education programs and special events in their new community engagement center, opening soon. Learn more at coolidge.org.
10: Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day.
4: Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador.
10: Play anytime at wbur.org slash fun.
4: Five across biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit.
10: Play the WBUR crossword free every day at wbur.org/fun.
8: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
9: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Julian Assange spent seven years in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, then five years in a high security prison. His latest move is up to a high court in London. Today, judges there began hearing two days of arguments over the WikiLeaks founder's future. NPR's Lauren Freer
36: reports from London. <laughs> Hundreds of protesters gathered outside London's High Court chanting. US UK hands off Assange. Inside two judges are deciding whether Julian Assange is allowed to appeal his extradition to the US even though the UK government has already signed an extradition order. US prosecutors have charged Assange with 17 counts of espionage and one count of computer misuse over WikiLeaks publication in 2010 of hundreds of thousands of secret files related to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They included this grainy black-and-white video from
15: 2007
36: of a U.S. helicopter firing Hellfire missiles at civilians in Baghdad, including two Reuters journalists. Kristin Rafsun is an Icelandic journalist who's been running WikiLeaks while Assange is in jail, and he calls that video
33: the napalm girl of the Iraq war it showed the true nature of the uh, that war
36: the napalm girl was an iconic photo from 1972 which helped turn public opinion against the vietnam war he says the baghdad video like that vietnam photo was in the public interest for americans to see the u.s army intelligence analyst who leaked that video and thousands of other files to assange was chelsea manning she went to prison, then had her sentence commuted. U.S. authorities still want to try Assange. Here's Senator Joe Manchin talking to reporters in 2019 when Assange was indicted.
29: I think it's very good for us to finally get him uh, in, on U.S. soil so we can investigate, we can basically cross-examine, we can find out the facts. That only he knows
36: Assange's lawyers are fighting extradition on three grounds they say this case is political that Assange is suicidal and that his prosecution would threaten freedom of the press everywhere
9: he's being accused of journalism
36: that's Assange's wife Stella Assange outside the courthouse today she calls Assange a publisher and says this case sets a precedent for any journalist to be prosecuted for publishing leaked documents
0: it's an attack on all journalists all over the world it's an attack on the truth and it's an attack on the public's right to know
36: judges here are not deciding whether assange is a journalist or a spy they're also not examining wikileaks role in the 2016 u.s election when it published democratic party emails allegedly hacked by russia the judges are only deciding if assange can appeal his extradition to the u.s And if London's high court says no, his lawyers say they'll ask the European Court of Human Rights to intervene, if Assange is not by then already on a plane to the U.S. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London.
8: Overdose deaths among teens have more than doubled in the past few years, and it doesn't help that addiction treatment for teens is hard to find, especially among doctors who specialize in children. Reporter Martha Biebinger of WBUR takes us to a pediatric clinic where addiction care is part of the routine. A 17-year-old boy with shaggy blonde hair
39: steps off a scale at the Tri-River Health Center and heads for an exam room decorated with planets and cartoon characters.
19: So Sam, I'm just gonna have you have a seat. I'm gonna confirm your
39: birth date again one more time and then I'm gonna check your blood pressure, okay? Sam's visit starts like any pediatric appointment here in small town Uxbridge, Massachusetts.
22: Good number, 10 over 64.
39: He's not treated differently because his disease is addiction. But Sam could face discrimination based on his drug use history, so NPR is only using his first name. Enter Sam's pediatrician, Dr. Safdar Medina.
9: Are we ready for me? Yeah. Excellent, thank you.
39: Medina greets Sam with a big smile and a light slap on the arm.
21: How you feeling overall in terms
18: of mood, okay? Yeah, it's been pretty good, just besides like random bumps where I'll get in arguments with my parents.
39: The doctor asks for an update on school and then tentatively about Sam's girlfriend. It was a stressful topic during Sam's visit two weeks ago.
9: That's going good. That's good, Sam. I'm glad that that's okay. Any cravings for opioids at all? None. What makes me really proud of you, Sam, is how committed you are to getting better.
39: Sam's urine tests haven't shown any sign of the illegal opioid pills he was buying on Snapchat. Dr. Medina is treating Sam with buprenorphine, a medication that curbs cravings for more dangerous and addictive opioids. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends offering it to opioid-addicted teens, but only 6% of pediatricians do, according to survey results to be published later this month.
23: Yeah, we're really far from where we need to be, and we're far on a couple of different fronts.
39: Dr. Scott Hadlin analyzed the survey of pediatricians, He says many don't think they have the right personnel for addiction treatment, don't think they have enough patients to justify adding it, or don't think it's a pediatrician's job. Hadlan, adolescent medicine chief at Massachusetts General Hospital, sees an urgent need.
23: In this era where young people are dying at truly unprecedented rates of opioid overdose, it's really critical that we save lives and we know that buprenorphine is a medication that saves lives.
39: There's another reason addiction experts are asking for more help from pediatricians. Drug use among adolescents is down, but deaths are up. The main culprit, fake Xanax, Adderall, or Percocet pills laced with fentanyl. 25% of recent overdose deaths among 10 to 19 year olds were traced to counterfeit pills. Dr. Andrew Terranella, the CDC's expert on adolescent overdose prevention, urges pediatricians to step up screening for any kind of drug use. He also suggests widespread prescribing of naloxone, the nasal spray that can reverse an overdose.
21: Fentanyl and counterfeit pills is really complicating our efforts to stop these overdoses. Many times these kids are overdosing without any awareness of what they're taking.
39: Addiction care can consume a lot of a pediatrician's time. Sam and Dr. Medina text several times a week but medina says treating a substance use disorder is one of the most rewarding things he does
21: if we can take care of it we have now
9: produced a functional adult we have produced an adult that will no longer have a lifetime of these
32: challenges to worry about
39: sam had seven months of residential and outpatient treatment without being offered buprenorphine when his cravings for opioids came back strong a counselor suggested sam's mom julie called dr medina oh my gosh like
22: I would have been having Sam here, like, two or three years ago. Would it have changed the path? I don't know. But it would have been a more appropriate level of care for him.
39: Sam says his biggest challenge has been ending friendships tied to his drug use. He's off now to snowboard with a new buddy, while Dr. Medina wraps up another day in a practice where more and more of his time is spent trying to find and treat kids like Sam before it's too late. For NPR News, I'm Martha Biebinger in Xbridge, Massachusetts.
19: And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits, at progressive.com. Not available in California or from all agents and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. We're in the midst of a series of sunny midwinter days. Should have a clear and cold night tonight, about 22 degrees for a low. And for tomorrow, should turn out just about as sunny as today has been, a little bit milder as well, close to 40 degrees tomorrow. For Thursday, bright skies again could break into the low 40s. It is 34 degrees now in Boston. The Bruins and Celts are both off tonight. The Bees will visit Edmonton tomorrow. The Celts resume action on Thursday. Day. This is WBUR. The time is 559.
1: I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: Today at the United Nations, Israel's ambassador to the UN spoke out against a ceasefire resolution in Gaza.
12: A ceasefire achieves one thing and one thing only, the survival of Hamas.
0: The U.S. again blocked the resolution for a ceasefire. It's Tuesday, February 20th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, record show Texas has spent $148 million taxpayer dollars to bus immigrants to Democrat-led cities since about 2022. Texas's Republican governor, Greg Abbott, says the cost is necessary. Critics say the program is inhumane. And Western support for Ukraine is increasingly uncertain as the full-scale Russian invasion enters its third year. So Ukraine is ramping up domestic arms production. Homegrown weapons in Ukraine, coming up. It's 6.01.
33: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. With just days to go before South Carolina's critical primary, Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley says she is staying in the race regardless of this weekend's results. Haley took on both a Republican rival, former President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden today in what her campaign called a state of the race speech. Here's NPR Sarah McCammon.
3: Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is trailing former President Trump in her home state's primary polls and has yet to win a presidential nominating contest. But she's continued campaigning and fundraising. Speaking in Greenville, Haley argued that both Trump and President Biden are no longer fit for the presidency and vowed to keep running. South
1: Carolina will vote. vote on Saturday. But on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere.
3: Haley's campaign says she saw her strongest fundraising month so far in January, bringing in more than $16 million. Sarah McCammon, NPR News.
33: Alabama's highest court has ruled frozen embryos created during fertility treatments should be considered children. Justices citing an 1872 Alabama state law allowing parents to sue over the death of a minor child. The ruling was in relation to a wrongful death case brought by couples who had frozen embryos accidentally destroyed at a fertility clinic. Mary Ziegler is a law professor at UC Davis.
32: Well, if embryos are persons under this ruling, that could have pretty profound downstream complications for how IVF has performed. So in IVF, generally more embryos are created than are implanted they're stored, sometimes they're donated or destroyed, depending on the wishes of the people pursuing IVF.
33: The ruling also brought warnings from other groups and advocates who contended it will have sleeping implications for fertility clinics across that state. President Biden is making a point. All those billions of dollars in needed aid for Ukraine would not be going only there. In fact, of the $61 billion in aid Biden wants Republicans to approve, about $40 billion would go to U.S. factories that make missiles, munitions and other gear. That includes munitions plants set to open this summer near Dallas. Stocks lost ground at the start of a holiday-shortened trading week. NPR's Scott Horsley has more.
30: Investors got a mixed picture from two of the nation's biggest retailers. Walmart says its sales were up during the most recent quarter, although the average customer is spending less per visit. Walmart shares rose three and quarter percent Home Depot offered a less encouraging forecast for the coming year. High interest rates have been a drag on both the housing market and home improvement sales. The company's stock showed little change. Stock in Discover Financial jumped more than 12% after Capital One announced plans to acquire the credit card company in a deal valued at more than $35 billion, Discover pioneered cash-back rewards for credit card users some four decades ago.
33: Scott Horsley, MPR News, Washington. The Dow was down 64 points today. The Nasdaq fell 144 points. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healy wants Stewart Healthcare to leave Massachusetts. In a letter she sent today to the Texas-based company, Healy said it should transfer its facilities to other operators. The financially troubled Stewart runs nine hospitals in Massachusetts. Healy says the company has failed to submit required financial documents for years. That's a violation of state law. Healy gave Stewart officials three days to produce financial records. No word on a response from Stewart. A Superior Court judge today dismissed a lawsuit against the Newton Teachers Union over their recent strike. A group of parents sued the union last week, pointing to student learning loss and emotional stress during the walkout. The strike caused 11 days of school to be missed. Students are making up some of those days this week, which is, for most schools, February break. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren has a Republican opponent now in her bid for re-election. WBOR's Anthony Brooks reports that John Deaton is a 56-year-old political newcomer. Deaton grew up working class in
5: Detroit, has lived most recently in Rhode Island, and moved to Massachusetts just last month to challenge Warren. He's an attorney who represented asbestos victims and is an advocate of cryptocurrency. In a campaign video, Deaton says he's running for Senate to take on corruption in Washington and fight for working families.
6: I am running for U.S. Senate to continue my life's mission to shake things up for the people who need it most.
5: Deaton's effort to topple Warren is a long shot. After two terms in the Senate, Warren has become a fixture of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. In a statement, her office says Warren has a long record of fighting for key priorities that support Massachusetts workers and families.
0: For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. A shelter to help newly arrived immigrants is now open in Chelsea. It will operate from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and offer refuge for people who already have someplace to sleep at night but nowhere to go during the day. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane.
27: Immigrant support nonprofit La Colaborativa is running the shelter with money from the state. Gladys Vega is La Colaborativa's executive director. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston the facility in Chelsea will offer breakfast, lunch and dinner for roughly 200 migrants and will support people as they start their lives in Massachusetts.
22: We will be processing documents, helping them with immigration papers, making sure that they get work authorizations so that we immediately can place them in jobs.
27: In the short term, La Colaborativa is also helping coordinate transportation to and from Chelsea, For people who sleep at a nighttime overflow shelter in Cambridge, for 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane.
0: Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell says the federal government needs to step up food protections. This after nearly 400 reported lead poisoning cases related to an applesauce marketed for children. Campbell joined 20 state attorneys general, calling on the Food and Drug Administration to improve enforcement. The group says current policy allows baby food manufacturers to sidestep some contaminant testing. 34 degrees now in the Boston area. A nice night ahead tonight, clear and dry and cold, about 22 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy and dry, a little bit milder than today has been. Temperatures in the upper 30s. Again, 34 degrees in Boston. The time is 6.07.
7: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Texas has now bused more than 100,000
9: migrants to cities like Denver, New York, Chicago, at an average cost of more than $1,400 per person. In a few minutes, we will hear from a Venezuelan migrant who has benefited from that busing program, along with others who question whether Texas
8: taxpayers should continue to foot the bill. But first, the Biden administration has once again used its veto power on the U.N. Security Council to block a call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield tried to avoid this diplomatic showdown by suggesting a
4: different draft resolution. Proceeding with a vote today was wishful and irresponsible. And so while we cannot support a resolution... That would put sensitive negotiations in jeopardy. We look forward to engaging on a text that we believe will address so many of the concerns we all share. Well, NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman
8: joins us now to explain more. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so this is the third time the U.S. has vetoed a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, right? Can you just explain why the U.S. keeps doing this?
10: Well, the ambassador argues that calling for a ceasefire without demanding that Hamas release hostages is not going to end this conflict. So Thomas Greenfield points out that the U.S. is working with Qatar and Egypt on a new hostage deal, one that would bring about a six-week-long pause in fighting. And she put forward a draft Security Council resolution that she says should back up this diplomacy. It actually calls for a temporary ceasefire, and that's new language for the U.S. to even be using that word, ceasefire. Mm. Um, The draft, though, says that this has to be based on a formula of getting all the hostages out. Uh, The draft also expresses grave concern for the more than a million and a half Palestinians in Rafah, that's in southern Gaza, ahead of a possible... Israeli ground operation. And, you know, also, there's just a lot of concern at the U.N. right now about Rafah.
8: Yeah, a lot of concern, not only at the U.N., but all over the world. What is the U.S. doing about the situation in Rafah?
10: Well, the U.S. has been warning Israel not to go into Rafah without a clear plan on how to protect civilians. Here's Thomas Greenfield again speaking to reporters outside the U.N. Security Council chambers.
4: No attacks on Rafah should take place given current circumstances. And we will keep pressing that. We know we've heard what Israel has said. They have not gone in to attack Rafah. And we will keep engaging and urging and pushing. In that direction to ensure that that does not happen.
10: So this is a case she's been making um, publicly and privately with the Israelis. Mentioning it in a draft Security Council resolution kind of ups the pressure on Israel to hold back.
8: Well, how quickly might we see a vote on the U.S. draft resolution, you think?
10: It's hard to say how long um, it'll take to negotiate this. Um, The ambassador representing the Palestinian Authority, Riyad Mansour, said well, it's good that the U.S. is now willing to talk about a ceasefire, even a temporary one, he thinks it would just be better for the U.S. to press Israel to agree to one. Mansour sounded pretty frustrated with the U.S. veto today. Here's what he said in the council chambers.
11: The message given today to Israel with this veto is that it can continue to get away with murder. Israel cannot and should not and will not get away with it. We will not allow it.
10: And I should say Israel's Ambassador Gilad Erdan was also at the Security Council saying diplomats keep talking about a ceasefire as if that's some magical solution to the region's problems. Take a listen.
12: A ceasefire achieves one thing and one thing only, the survival of Hamas. Exactly the opposite of how it's portrayed, a ceasefire is a death sentence for many more Israelis and Gazans.
10: So he's making clear there won't be a ceasefire as long as Hamas is controlling Gaza and holding hostages.
8: Well, speaking of hostages, I mean, what has been the latest on hostage negotiations at this point, Michelle?
10: Well, the Biden administration's envoy, Brett McGurk, is heading back to the region trying to push for a deal. But these talks are taking a long time. You know, the U.S., Qatar, and Egypt came up with kind of a framework at the end of January. Hamas came back with a counterproposal a couple of weeks ago, which Israel dismissed as delusional. So these are not easy discussions. And in the meantime, fighting continues. And there's the concern about Rafah, and also the fact that not much aid is getting in.
8: That is NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thank you so much, Michelle.
10: Thank you.
9: The state of Texas has bused more than 100,000 migrants to cities like Chicago, New York, and Denver. It is part of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's border security initiative, but the transportation is costing the state millions of dollars, the Texas Newsroom's Sergio Martinez Beltran reports.
13: Hola, hola Sergio, ¿cómo
14: estás? Todo bien y tú? That's Jay. The reason you hear some background noise is because he's calling in from his car as he gets ready to start his delivery job in Maryland. We're only using Jay's first initial because he worries about being targeted by immigration enforcement for speaking out. He's one of hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans who have taken a dangerous journey to cross into Mexico and later into the U.S. It all started in January
13: 2022.
14: Jay says he spent New Year's Eve with his family in Venezuela and later left for the U.S. He had no money with him and was only carrying a backpack with a few clothing items. The whole journey took him about two months. It included crossing the Darien Gap, the dangerous jungle between Colombia and Panama, and the Rio Grande River into the Rio, Texas. That's where Jay was processed by Border Patrol and was later offered a free bus to Washington, D.C. Jay says he was scared at the beginning because the buses were guarded by men in military gear. He wondered if they were going to take him to D.C. or to a military camp. He arrived in the nation's capital three days later. The bus Jay took was paid by the state of Texas as part of Governor Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star Border Initiative. Since the inception of the busing program in 2022, Texas has bused over 102,000 migrants. Records obtained by the Texas newsroom show that as of the end of January, Texas has spent over 148 million taxpayer dollars on this. That number is growing significantly every day. The cities that have received the highest number of migrants are New York City, Chicago, and Denver.
15: Well, it's certainly a great deal of money
14: to to be spent. Ray Perryman is the president of the Waco-based economic research company, The Perryman Group. Texas' two-year budget is $321 billion. And while bossing migrants is a small portion of that, Perryman wonders if the state should keep using taxpayer dollars to foot the bill.
15: Well, obviously, as long as as the uh, as the legislature is willing to to allow it and the governor wants to do it, that these 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 dollar amounts, as you pointed out, are not a huge percentage of the overall state budget. And so it's certainly something that could be done. I think the question is, should it be done?
14: It depends who you ask. Texas State Representative David Spiller, a Republican, supports the governor's mission to bus migrants to Democratic led cities. We knew
16: here in Texas that that was uh, a very good approach. Uh, because, if nothing else, then to raise awareness to the rest of the country of of what we're having to
14: deal with here on a regular basis. And as for the cost, Spiller says the money spent is creating an impact on the nation.
16: They get a busload of folks in New York, say they get 100 people, and they think the sky is falling. We, We get 100 people every 15 minutes.
14: For the record, in December, some sectors along the Texas border saw about 2,300 daily migrant crossings, but those numbers significantly decreased in January. Meanwhile, Texas has sent over 37,000 people to New York City alone since April
17: 2022. This allowed them to get them there quickly and safely.
14: Tiffany Burrow is the operations director at Valverde Border Humanitarian Coalition, which helps recently arrived migrants in Del Rio. Initially, she coordinated with organizations in arrival cities, so migrants were received with food, clothes and respect. She says at first, the busing program wasn't all bad.
17: We strictly saw this as an option that that benefited the migrants that were coming through.
14: But she says things changed last year. Texas stopped respecting certain agreements, like dropping off people before 6 a.m. or past 10 p.m., or even letting organizations know at what time buses were arriving. Burrow says these changes made it unsafe for migrants, so she stopped the partnership with the state.
17: But I think it's entirely possible that state buses have run their course. The numbers are so, they're drastically lower um,
14: right now. But Governor Abbott says he'll keep transporting migrants to other states, and other governors have followed Texas' lead. Florida Republican Ron DeSantis and Arizona Democrat Katie Hobbs run their own busing programs. Meanwhile, other states are feeling the burden of the influx. Last month, Illinois Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker begged Abbott not to send buses during a winter storm when the shelters were at capacity. Colorado Governor Jared Polis, also a Democrat, has asked the federal government for financial resources to states receiving migrants. But regardless of the politics of it all, the bus that Jay took definitely changed his life. He started working and saving money. He moved out of the shelter and now has an apartment. He also has a driver's license. And the bus program has also changed the lives of Jay's mother and four siblings. They all took a bus from Texas after he did and landed in New York City for free. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltrán in Austin.
8: Listening to all things considered from NPR News. And this is
0: 90.9 WBUR. Misinformation about the 2020 election was rampant. That has election officials laying the groundwork now to help their communities and the nation have confidence in the results this November. We've got a special report on the economics of election integrity coming up at 6.30 here at 90.9 WBUR. The Dow gave up almost two percent, uh, two-tenths of a percent at the closing bell today. S&P gave up six-tenths of a percent and the NASDAQ was down more than nine-tenths of a percent. The forecast is next.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Turn your old car into new news. Support the
5: programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars.
0: Should be clear and cold tonight, down around 22 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny, breezy, dry. Should be a little bit milder. Temperatures in the upper 30s. 32 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. It's
19: 621. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang. Almost two years after he was extradited to the U.S., the trial of the former president of Honduras has begun in New York City. As NPR's Ada Peralta reports, Juan Orlando Hernandez faces charges that he ran Honduras as a narco state.
20: In a country used to impunity, it was a shock to see what happened in the spring of
13: 2022. The
20: former president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, came out of jail handcuffed and he was put on a plane to the United States where he was charged with drug trafficking. According to prosecutors, Hernandez took millions of dollars from some of the world's most powerful drug cartels and in exchange, they say, the president offered them protection. The U.S. alleges Hernandez helped move tons of cocaine through Honduras on its way to the United States. Juan Orlando Hernandez has denied all of these charges. Outside the courthouse this morning, just before jury selection began, his lawyer, Raymond Colon, said they were confident in their defense. A Tell me, he said, why would a president promote extradition? Why would he fight against organized crime if he was a drug trafficker? That has been central to Hernandez's defense. In an open letter he said this trial was revenge by drug traffickers who resent his tough policies against them. How could he be a drug trafficker if as president he was such a good friend to the US? Hernandez's wife, Ana Hernandez, published a video reading his letter. All of his plans were known by the highest levels of the American government, the letter reads, from President Biden, who knew him as vice president, to President Trump, the CIA, to the Justice Department, to the DEA. So how could he now be accused of being a drug trafficker? Dana Frank, whose book, The Long Honduran Night, details Honduras's recent history, says that might be one of the most interesting parts of this trial. During his two terms as president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, she says, was an unwavering American ally. Indeed, while Hernandez was president, the U.S. pumped millions into his government, including to fight drug trafficking. That's why, Frank says, this is not a story about how the United States is heroically bringing a corrupt former president to justice.
21: Because United States knew about all his crimes.
20: Frank says she hopes this trial will reveal not only how narco corruption works in Honduras, but much more on how the United States might be complicit. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City.
9: Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine is entering its third year, and Ukraine is running out of arms. Russian troops are advancing, as here in the U.S., congressional Republicans are holding up military aid. So Ukraine is ramping up its own production of weapons and ammunition. NPR's Joanna Kikisis has more from Kiev.
22: We're outside a nondescript warehouse somewhere in Ukraine. A ginger-haired man named Bogdan asks us to put our phones into airplane mode. Okay, inside airplane mode? Inside the warehouse is a factory run by Ukrainian armor one of the country's biggest weapons companies. Bogdan supervises mortar production here. He declines to give his last name and the location of this factory for security reasons. Ukrainian Armor has spread out its production facilities in secret locations across Ukraine to avoid being targeted by Russian missiles. The company requires all our employees to sign non-disclosure agreements, Bogdan says. And of course they can't post photos or videos from here, on social media. Inside the factory, young mechanics are checking a line of newly painted mortar launchers. Several hundred of these mortar launchers have been sent to the front line. But Bogdan says Ukraine needs many more. Russia, he says, has always had more weapons. As the war enters its third year, a cold reality is facing Ukraine. Its Western support is flagging while Russia buys weapons from Iran and North Korea. Ukrainian armor and dozens of other homegrown arms manufacturers are turning out weapons as fast as they can.
11: We have unfair perception in the Western countries, especially U.S., that the only equipment we use here in Ukraine is only what we received as a support during this war.
22: Vladislav Belbas is an arms dealer and the director of Ukrainian armor. We meet him at company headquarters in a Kiev high-rise.
11: That is like fully, fully incorrect information. And we had stocks of equipment here in Ukraine from the Soviet times.
22: Ukraine reduced its anti-tank and anti-infantry weaponry to comply with a Soviet-era treaty governing conventional arms in Europe. Weapons production got going again after 2014, when Russian proxies invaded and occupied part of Ukraine's east and the southern peninsula of Crimea. But since Russia's full-scale invasion two years ago...
11: Now it's rapidly increasing multiple times. And also the government went from one-time purchases to start put long-term orders to manufacturers in Ukraine.
22: Belba says Ukrainian armor started producing armored vehicles in 2015.
11: We also, starting from 2017, 2018, developed... And manufacturing mortars, all kinds of calibers, 60, 82, and 120 millimeters, and also ammunition for those mortars.
22: Ukrainian armor also makes parts for the Bogdana, a Ukrainian designed self propelled howitzer mounted on a military truck. The Bogdana helped Ukrainian troops drive Russians out of Snake Island, a strategic point in the Black Sea. Across town, another company, Quertus, makes electronic warfare and reconnaissance systems.
11: We protect the soldier at the front line, our products for these needs.
22: That's Sergei Skoruk, the sales director for Quertus. He says he visits the front line nearly every week.
11: Because we are speaking with the head of electronic warfare there in brigades, and they just told us what they want to see, how it will be, looks like, etc, etc, etc.
22: He says Russia uses drones to stalk Ukrainian soldiers trying to evacuate the wounded. So Kvertis developed a special backpack to block the drones' signal. A Kvertis employee named Dimitro Kavvisky zips up a black backpack with two antennae and a rechargeable battery. A button connects to a small generator inside.
12: When drone wants to kill you, you push the button. Backpack switch on and uh, invisible defense working.
22: Kvartas has sent a 1,000 of these backpacks to the front line and Skoruk says there are orders for many more. Ukraine eventually wants to cover all its own defense needs, but lawmaker Oleksandra Ustinova says that goal is years away. So, for example, we don't have our own gunpowder production and so the explosives are dependent on that. Ustinova works on defense issues in Ukraine's parliament. She's been in Washington lobbying Congress to approve a $61 billion military and economic aid package to Ukraine. We understand that we cannot be guaranteed that there will be more support coming, and we have to be as independent as we can to have as much production being done in Ukraine as it is possible. So back at Ukrainian Armor's secret factory, workers keep churning out mortars and tanks. They only stop for the air raid sirens signaling another Russian missile attack. Joanna Kisses, NPR News, Kiev. This
0: is NPR News. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. A key environmental effort to improve air quality and protect people from downwind pollution is being challenged by several states at the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll explain why tomorrow morning right here at 90.9 WBUR. Listen when you wake up tomorrow. Boston, Bruins and Celtics are both off tonight. The Bees will visit Edmonton tomorrow. Celtics resume action on Thursday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our
28: listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com